This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good morning, Stephen. It is. A little earlier than we normally record, but I think this one was worth it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. When Mister Shockey says we want to record at eight thirty, we record at eight thirty. It's uh, uh, he had a, a tea time to make today, so he managed to uh, sneak us in this morning. And super grateful. It's always a pleasure to talk to Jim. And um, you know, you and I both follow him on social, as do millions mm-hmm. of others. And uh, yeah, he's got a different perspective in the world. He's you know he's. He's a wise individual that's been around. He's seen oh, these yeah. things. Um, you know, he, it's interesting. I, we learn a little bit about Jim's past on this podcast. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of knew where he grew up. and But I, I always grew up, thought he grew up in a rural environment and grew up on the farm, right? So I was a little surprised yeah. that, to learn yeah, about that. Pretty cool little, pretty cool dive into a little bit of a Jim Shockey before he was Jim Shockey, right? Uh knowing a little bit about his history and what uh, what he used to do as a kid was not what I expected. I, I, I totally expected somebody who came out kicking and screaming with a rifle in his hand and shooting deer before he, he was out of diapers type deal, right? That's just the type of person you expect him to be. But no, it's it was pretty cool. Pretty, pretty uh, neat to get to know. Well, and we had a fairly narrow window there, um, as you can appreciate, Jim's uh, on tight timelines. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of dive into where we are today and, you know, the social media world. And he's he's the, the pointy end of the stick when it comes to dealing with all the stuff. And, you know, he's obviously being uh, – you know, the anti-hunting community is always kind of chasing after him. And, um, you know, he gets a lot of trolling on his pages, and he's always dealt with it so well. Um, so it was really interesting to hear his perspective and, um, you know, a lot of the things I've been thinking about, um, but he, he has a special way of articulating it. So, yeah, it was a really interesting talk on the modern day and, and uh, the woke movement and how it's affecting things and, and you know, where we go from here, right? Yeah, it's, again, uh, the, the public persona that you, you see is a little bit different than Jim Shockey, the person we get a chance to talk to him one-on-one here. And he just is so articulate and he's very passionate and he conveys very well uh, the thoughts that I I think we're all thinking without even realizing we're thinking them, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and again, he's been doing this, you know, he said he's been in the industry 40 years and he's seen the evolution where, you know, the golden days when, you know, hunters were kind of legends and and they kind of, you know, they would be in the mainstream media and that stopped a long time ago and things are different now. Right. So he's kind of seen the, you know, the two sides of things and, and really interesting to get his perspective and the perspective on where he thinks, you know, the, our hunting community is going in terms of relevance in the mainstream media. Right. So it's, uh, or the, the, the public, I guess, not so much the media, just the, the general public. So. Yeah, definitely not afraid to pull any punches, mince any words. Uh, he knows where we've been, where we are and where we're going. And I absolutely love that. And I think this podcast, uh, was, was a great way to, uh, to figure that out. And it's, like I said, uh, it takes you 15, 20 seconds to read one of his posts, but when you get a chance to to chat like this, it he gets a chance to uh, really articulate, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so a little housekeeping on our end. Um, just keep in mind uh, our Wild Sheep raffles. We still have some tickets there, and uh, a couple of them are going to sell out imminently, our uh, Desert 
Bighorn Sheep Hunt is uh, getting close, and our Barney Sheep Camp doesn't have many tickets left there. So if you're thinking about getting some WSR, you better get on them now. And uh, we also just released a life member raffle. Um, so you you buy a $100 ticket, uh, you get a 1 in 200 chance at a Silver Sage Pronghorn Hunt in Alberta, and you get a Yeti mug, which is uh, I think it's retail and that's 40 bucks plus the logo. It's about a $50 value. So mm-hmm. basically you're getting a mug and a $50 raffle ticket is if you did the math on it, a uh, hundred dollar tickets, there's only 200 sold and you got a chance of going to Alberta to hunt antelope with silver sage outfitters. I can say they're flying. They're flying out the door. It's keeping me really, really busy. So um, yeah, there's, the, I, I, they gotta be over half sold, sold at least gotta be they are yeah it's over 50 percent now uh, yeah. in the first two days uh yeah. so this is for life members only if you're not a life member uh consider joining you go over to wildsheepsociety.com click on membership and uh, we're also doing a membership promotion which we haven't launched yet but we're backdating it to january 1st so if you sign up as a life member you're gonna get in for that chance to win and uh first place prize on that is a fully guided sturgeon trip on the fraser river so uh some really cool prizes and great opportunity to sign up uh, if you're thinking about uh, up into life. And then the big thing is, is you're supporting a conservation organization that's putting money back on the ground. $318,000 in 2021. Uh, right now, we've got our Act Now campaign up. We're advocating for the bighorns in uh, the region for the Kootenai region. Um, as you may or may not have heard, what are we up to? Five bighorns last week, Steve? Seven. Ugh. Seven bighorns were... Uh, the result of a highway collision around the radium region. Um, there's a bunch of things going on in radium right now. Uh, it's a bad time of year for these bighorns. They come down around the highway. There's high speeds. The traffic volumes are up because the number one's closed. So people are rooting through radium. And uh, the regional bios are telling us there were 200 bighorns killed over the last 10 years, but there were seven last week in the last 10 days or something like that. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, th- there is plans to build an overpass, but it doesn't, a wildlife overpass, but it doesn't exist. So, um, you know, we're, we're really, this is front and center for us, th- this region four issue. Um, and we're really pushing the government to do more. Uh, they want to just kind of rely on the whole LEH argument uh, around these bighorns. And we're like, no, no, we need to look at this holistically. We need to look at, sure. Okay. Let's, let's have a discussion around, uh, regulations with regards to hunting. We're okay with that. And um, give us the data that you're going to support it with LEH or are there alternatives there? But really we're looking big picture. We need to do all these other things, you know, wildlife overpasses, dealing with habitat, predation, uh, mm-hmm. disease and health, uh, all these different issues that are affecting these uh, big horns, stuff that's going to have a meaningful change. Uh, yeah, we can, we could even stop hunting them. It's not going to uh, restore these populations. So, you know, that's kind of our argument. We need to do more for bighorns in the Kootenai region. Yeah, it's, it, LEH is one small piece of a larger puzzle, right? You, you can't just pull one piece out and hope that it's going to be complete, right? It's It doesn't make sense. You, as you said, habitat, predation, overpass, there's there's so many pieces there. And we're, we're willing to come to the table and uh, with other stake and title holders to have a, a conversation to... To, to put together a plan what that looks like right now it's uh well let's let's put that lever on hunters again and uh yeah they've suggested things but we know from dealing in the past how that looks right it's uh put something down and well we'll we'll look at it we'll study it to death but right now we'll do this and we're, we're still fighting 15 years later so yeah get involved and uh reach out to your mla join join the society and have your voice heard so anyone interested in a bit more of the background on these bighorns, there's a um, bighorn management plan for the Kootenai region. Uh, there's our position statement on it, on it, and there's an opportunity to do a bit more if you want to get involved with this movement and stay apprised of it. So go to our, our website, wildsheepsociety.com forward slash act now, A-C-T-N-O-W, and uh, you'll get some more info there and you can uh, get involved if you feel like you want to do more. So with that, uh, this is episode 60 with Jim Shockey. Uh, just a fantastic uh, episode. Uh, offline, we talked to Jim, and he's his timelines are tight. 
but he can fit us in uh, for these shorter talks. So he's uh, offered to come back. We're hoping he'll be back on the show. Uh, I think he suggested number 70 in the, uh, <laughs> he doesn't want the, to be uh, number 70 cause it's getting too close to his age. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, enjoy episode 60, 60. Across Canada and throughout the world. If you come across a campfire in the woods on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Coming on the show, really appreciate you taking your time today. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be on. I understand it's, what, number 60? Number 60, yeah. Yeah, you, you wanted to kind of get up in my age bracket before you put me on. Is that the idea? Didn't want me on in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. No, you got to wait till it's in the 60s. Great. Thanks, guys. Total respect for that. Actually, the truth is, Jim, we just really wanted to get in the shock therapy studio. And this is, we, this is the only way we knew we could do it. So this was our, uh, this was getting in the back door with you. Yeah, well, w- welcome. You're definitely in our shock therapy uh, studio. I, I, I've got the camera angle a little bit here, so you're, I can see wherever that that light shouldn't be on the camera, but uh, but you, you got as good as you're going to get today. Fantastic. Well, thanks for having us, and uh, always just great to sit down and ch- talk to you. And um, every time I run into you, I learn so much about what's going on in the world of hunting. And you know, you think you know something, and then you talk to Jim Shockey, and you learn about a hundred other things. So, um, just looking forward to catching up with you today. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, Jim, so, you know, we, we all follow you on social media, pretty easy to do. You, you keep us uh, apprised of things and we know family is such a big part of who you are, but you know, I, I'm a prairie boy. I think you were born and raised in Saskatchewan. I know the family farms out there. Is that where your origin is all the time? Or I know you've been on the coast here for years, but talk us through that. Cause I've just, I was thinking about that this morning. Sure. Yeah. I, I was born in Saskatoon, uh, yeah. uh, back in 1957. You guys are <laughs> you're a little too young. That was the last century, actually. But uh, but yeah, Saskatoon. I, I grew up uh, in a trailer park, so I, I went to uh, public school and high school in Saskatoon. But at the age of seventeen, I left home and came out to the coast, and and pretty much have been here ever since. I, I came out for a swimming scholarship for Simon Fraser University. Went for two years, and then at uh, uh, walked onto the Canadian National Water Polo Team, so had to centralize in Ottawa. So I went to Carleton University for two more years after that, and then came back to the coast and been out here ever since. We, we've actually lived here on Vancouver Island, not too far from our Hand of Man Museum, which is where our studio is uh, for the last 35 years. Yeah, beautiful part of the world, and uh, every time I drive by, I'm envious uh, that area there. It's so gorgeous. I'm, of course, in the metropolis of Victoria here, which is uh, nice enough, but it's certainly not where you're at there, so envious it's, for sure. It's pretty nice. I mean, people ask why here, and, and really, Louise, uh, Nana Weezy, a lot of you know her as, uh, we had our choice. We could have lived anywhere, and, and when it comes down to it, I mean, it's pretty nice in British Columbia, you know, I mean, compared to where else everywhere else in the world. Uh, and, and when you narrow it down, you know, it's pretty tough to golf in Kamloops right now, but I'm you know, going to be golfing today. So hence the reason that's, you thought I had a real important, important uh, meeting, but it's actually just a golf tea time. So, so <laughs> you, you, can, you can golf all year round here, which, which where else can you golf all year round in Canada or yeah. British Columbia, you know, or along the coast? Well, that's pretty important, I would say. So we'll be respectful of your time there for sure, Jim. Um, so now you, you grew—you were born in Saskatoon. Did you grow up? You must have been a farm that you grew up in. Then uh, it was obviously rural, right? Uh, no, no, I grew up in a trailer park. Uh, we <laughs> on the outskirts of Saskatoon, right beside <laughs> the old what was it the Stardust uh, outdoor oh, theater. Ring. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I could stand in my my bed in the trailer and, and watch the the bad movies i don't know if you remember those well you wouldn't remember those but the, the early <laughs> 60s were they were pretty racy movies and I, i'd be able to watch them every night on the, the big drive-in theater but uh not not on a farm my, my family grew up on a farm we do still own a ranch out there uh, louise and i over the years uh, you know I, my parents didn't have a lot of money so and i remember it was a major decision dad was 
and mom were talking about buying eight, I think 160 acres, a quarter of land. And, and it was a major, it was like $90,000 or some crazy number back then. And, and, uh, and they couldn't do it. And, and I, you know, they, the conversation around the dinner table was always whether dad was going to get laid off or have a job or, you know, this is what I grew up with. And I, and I just vowed that I would never, ever, ever be in that position, no matter what it would take. And, and, uh, how much hard work if I had to work 23 and a half hours a day for my life, I, I just was never going to have somebody that could lay me off. So, so, and also part of that was, was this land in Saskatchewan, dad and mom decided they couldn't afford it. And, and, uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe to make up or who knows what, I'm not a psychologist or psychologist, psychologist, but, uh, but I started uh, putting land together and, and we now have 2,200 acres out there and, have had for a long time. We call it the family farm. And it was land that our family used to hunt on way back in the day. I was a kid. I used to hunt on that land. Uh, so, so it was, you know, I, I just put it together. And now we have it out there. I don't get drawn to hunt on our land, but, uh, but <laughs> we do have the ranch out there just outside of Saskatoon. Cool. So now with regards to your hunting, where did that come from? So if you're, you're living in the city in the trailer park, was there always just, and the thing is with you, you have a fascination with wildlife and history and everything like that. So paint a picture for us on the evolution of that, where that all came from, Jim. Yeah. You, you know, I, my earliest memory, literally my earliest memory is, is dad and my uncles were tearing down a granary out of, uh, you know, dad grew up on a farm. So the family farm was there near Vanskoy, Saskatchewan. And, uh, and they were tearing down the granary and I, I you know, I was obviously too young. I, I don't think I was two, two years old, maybe three i don't know probably out of diapers if dad had me and uh, although maybe that was five i can't remember how long it took me to get out of diapers <laughs> but uh you know I, I remember turning over bricks and and stones and pieces of board and finding beetle bugs and earthworms that so my earliest memory of of catching collecting you know gathering was that uh you know so so i i think it was innate you know for me i i just i honestly believe there's a hunting gene that some of us are, are fortunate enough to, to be, um, you know, natured with. And, and, uh, so I, I started at that age and, and graduated to mice and gophers and rabbits. Um, yeah. And, and with always, it was, there was always a, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't wait to, to have the skills and to be old enough to, to actually be gathering, you know, hunting and gathering, the things that would provide for the family to make the family better to you know allow us to eat and and you know part of that probably came because as i said we didn't have a lot of money so so we didn't go buy a cow if dad didn't get a moose every year we didn't eat meat in the winter i mean i remember it. we we didn't eat meat i mean it was macaroni and it was a it was a big deal for for dad to go that one week in november they always went in the late season uh, to, you know, bring back the, the moose, uh, you know, my uncles and dad would go out there and if they, when they showed back up, uh, you know, I'd be waiting at the window and, and they'd pull up and there'd be moose legs sticking out of the back of the truck. And, you know, it's not like we were starving, but, but, uh, you know, we just didn't have the money to go spend on, you know, frivolous things. And, and my mom was, a you know, good Ukrainian stock, uh, from Elk Point, Alberta, and, and always, believed in healthy eating. It, it, you know, she was way, way ahead of this whole organic movement. She, you know, we had a huge garden always out at the farm and, uh, and she wouldn't go buy bologna or canned foods and everything was made from scratch. So we were very fortunate that way, but it meant we didn't buy canned foods and, and, uh, without meat, without bologna, you know, it was, it was, uh, again, it was just something that I vowed I would never do and I would get really good at it. And, and, uh, that's why I worked my way up through to rabbits. Finally gophers I brought home, but I couldn't convince my mom that they were actually good eating. They, they are, <laughs> they are, yeah, <laughs> I've, eaten, I've eaten my fair share, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, rabbits. And, and then, you know, finally got up into the deer when I was 14, I got my first deer. So, so it was, it was a natural thing. My dad hunted, but not, you know, he, his, he was such a selfless man. I mean, he just, he was the greatest man. He sacrificed his life to be able to provide for his family. 
he wanted to be a pilot. Well, you couldn't do that because, you know, it didn't pay or he wasn't willing to take the chance. He had a job, you know, and, and that was always his thing. You, you needed to have a job where someone's, you know, giving you a check. So, so he couldn't take that risk of, of getting into hunting, even though I think he loved it. Um, I don't know if, it, oh, I'm sure it wasn't as strong as it is in me. I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, this is who I am. I, I live and breathe and, and am, you know, a hunter. Uh, but, but dad would do it for the meat, you know, and, and you probably watched the shows over the years. It was, mm -hmm. it was for the meat. I mean, it was the antlers you could care less about. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite things was an episode. You guys were in the Yukon. He walks out onto the, the lake with his fishing rod throws out one cast reels it in goes fish aren't biting and walks away yeah, that's <laughs> i love bad. that yeah, absolutely bad, yeah. love that yeah he and you know people always ask did we feed them those lines and, and i said look they, they, these guys couldn't remember their own names you know my father <laughs> and uh Len and, and my dad Hal. you know they that, that's just who they were and, and they loved it i think they you know the more irritating they could make my life the better they felt about you know their hunt because you always, I mean, they, they were just, you guys all saw half an hour of the show. I was with them for a week. You know, <laughs> it was like, it was, I'd phone Louise at night and say, I don't think I can do this. I, like, <laughs> you know, like they purposely would be coughing and wiggling and giggling and, mm -hmm. and hawking loogies out the window, you know, for just when prime time would come. I mean, that's, this is what they did. And then they'd look and see my reaction because they didn't <laughs> care. They, they knew, I actually have said this before, that I learned more about what hunting really is about uh from those two old gentlemen than than my entire career and and you know it's about having fun when it comes right down to it it's fun i mean it's just fun you're fun with having fun with your family your your friends the camaraderie the stories you tell the laughter the smiles and the memories you make that's what it's about and 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 that's they right. kind of taught me where i was pretty focused on trying to get them their deer well they knew that that's you know that that, that the kill on any mm -hmm. hunt is you know it's this much it may be the motivator for us to get out there and, and freeze our tails off in the cold Saskatchewan winter, but um, but it's not not what hunting's truly about, and and they taught me that. Hmm. So, how do you go from water polo and university to um, to you know basically a full time hunter? And I know there was the furniture shop and a whole bunch of other things going on there too, but. Uh, I guess what were you taking in university and what was the evolution to, I guess, the guide outfitting business and then I guess the camera, the TV business as well too, Jim. Holy cow. You're asking for a biography here. <laughs> you, you ask the question, you're going to get it. So be careful what you ask for. Um, yeah, I, I was, I, I went to Simon Fraser, as I said, on a swimming scholarship. So I was all American swimmer, but I, I mean, up and down the swimming pool, like that, that's pretty brutal on the brain. So I, but I loved water polo. That's a good, tough, you know, sport. I, I just love love the game and and was fast, uh, had pretty good hands. So I so I uh, I I stopped swimming in two thousand. Well, I don't remember what year. Uh, Nineteen holy cow, nineteen seventy. <laughs> you know, I I, I uh, and I decided to switch from being a swimmer to a water polo player. I started playing for Simon Fraser University. I was taking kinesiology at the time. And I said that I was on scholarship. Simon Fraser was the only Canadian university that gave scholarships for sports in Canada. The Americans did, but Canadians, we had CIAU at the time. Uh, um, and they, uh, you know, something Canadian universities, and uh, they didn't believe in giving scholarships. So Simon Fraser wasn't allowed to compete in Canada. We had to compete in the States. So that's why I was All-American Swimmer, even though I was a Canadian university. I'm taking kinesiology. So Simon Fraser was on the, the cutting edge of, of um, well, kinesiology. And, and the rest of the universities in Canada did not recognize it as, a, as an actual legitimate uh, undergraduate degree. So when I transferred out to Carleton University in Ottawa, the national water polo team, they, they picked me pretty quickly. I mean, I was, I was a good player um, and, and fairly big, although I learned when I got into the water polo, I was the third smallest on our team. It was, uh, it was, uh, they're, they're big guys, you know, internationally too. We, we didn't have a big team compared to the other teams, but, um, I was mean, so I survived it. But, uh, but when I transferred over to Ottawa, Carleton, they didn't recognize my courses that I'd taken in Simon Fraser or they, not all of them. So I did two years in Carleton and ended up, uh, 
four classes short, like a, a semester, four classes only uh, for a psychology degree and five classes for a biology degree short and uh, six classes for a combined major with those two. So, but I was in for sports. I didn't care about that. And, and uh, when I did four years, I was like, I'm out of here. This is, you know, sitting in a classroom is not for me. I think I challenged most of my courses on the last year. I just didn't want to sit in a classroom anymore. I had a, had a life to live. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I uh, went, went out to British Columbia. There, there was a, Andre Molnar is a big developer, or was a big developer in Vancouver, still is to this day, actually. And he's a water polo, Hungarian national sport is water polo, so he offered me a job. So I started as a uh, laborer with a, a shovel and, and a broom on, on a construction site and took courses at night about about building, I can't remember what it was, in, in uh, one of those colleges there. So I did night classes, and within two years, I'd worked my way up to project manager and was doing, I think in the end, I had 10 houses going in Whitehorse and, and uh, or no, in White Rock and, and uh, three apartment buildings in Castlegar. And that was 1981 for anybody that's wow. old enough to remember. Uh, interest rates went up to 23%. And I walked away from, you know, I thought I would be a billionaire. And I walked away with my dog, my my stereo and my car. And, and none of them were, were great. <laughs> including my dog uh you know i didn't nobody lost money so that was good but i literally had to start all over again and and uh that's where i got into the antiques I, you know I, it was I, my grandfather was dying at the time and i went out to help my grandmother because i had nothing else to do and uh and uh she gave me 300 dollars. and she you know ukrainian lady she died at 99 still living well at 98 was still living in the original sod house that they built in 1929 my grandfather and her and and no running water no plumbing this is in alberta in elk point i mean it's cold in the winter no no plumbing no nothing had her goats in the house and chickens out the front there and and uh so she gave me 300 dollars and and for helping her with my grandpa and uh, she said don't spend it on food you cannot starve in this country she said go buy something for 50 dollars sell it for a hundred and keep doing that. And she said, that's how you'll make money. And, and so I did, I went, I went out, back out to the coast and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it didn't, you know, it didn't make sense to buy furniture, uh, because you buy it from Ikea, it's worth, you know, a fraction, you know, 5% of what you spent on it the day before. But if you went and bought an antique, you know, it's worth the same money at least. And if you bought well, it's worth more and you refinish it, you, you make a little more money. So, so I, uh, I went around to garage sales and, and uh, started selling antiques in Vancouver out in the Dunbar area. Um, you know, pretty fancy area. I rented a house, rented the upstairs to three graduate students. And I lived in the basement with a, a ceiling that was, uh, it was five and a half feet, the ceiling. And, I, you know, I'm 6'3". So, you know, I, I mean, I banged my head so many times. And when I, I actually use plastic, uh, you know, clear plastic to sheet off a bedroom for myself. Uh, and I lived down in my workshop and I refinished furniture and, and uh, sold it at garage sales on the weekend uh, until the city shut me down. You know, there was a lineup of cars <laughs> and I was bringing, by that time, bringing loads with my van from Saskatchewan. And and they said, you run into business, mm -mm, mm -mm. you know, and there's you know, <laughs> 50 cars lined up and people all over the yard and furniture stacked everywhere. And, I, and I'd go, I'd show it in the upstairs. So those graduate students, that was the deal. I get to I'll furnish it, but I get to sell it anytime, come upstairs anytime I want and, and show people whatever furniture and re I'll replace it, but it'll, it was my showroom. So, so yeah, then I had to start an antique. I had to actually go legit and I had an antique store in Vancouver, uh, full cart interiors down on 10th Avenue and eventually had uh, a big gallery down in Yale town before Yale town was Yale town and, uh, and a big warehouse down in Yale town as well. And, uh, then, <clears throat> Ralph Lauren walked in one day. We we're running out of antiques in the prairies. I literally had a semi-trailer coming out every month. And uh, Ralph Lauren walked in one day with his crew and essentially bought me out. I furnished all his uh, Ralph Lauren country stores. He was trying to get away from the Polo brand, you know, and, which was a franchise, and he wanted to own the country stores. So we furnished all his original country stores. And that took all my, my inventory, and, and I used that money to to buy my first opening territory on Vancouver Island.
and and in the mean while i was doing all that antiques i was writing for magazines you know doing two two jobs essentially selling antiques but also creating a profile within the outdoor industry i didn't know if i'd be selling camouflage t-shirts i mean at the time that was camouflage was new i didn't know what it would be but i knew i'd be in the outdoor industry because that was where my heart was i love art uh, ethnocentric uh, arts uh, ethnographic arts i love it but uh, my heart is is in the wildlands and and uh, so i need i knew i needed to somehow make a living in our industry which which i didn't know what it would be but i wanted a profile that's why i was writing uh, articles for magazines so when i made the jump to outfitting i already had a fairly high uh, profile in the States, even, uh, just from my writing in the magazines down there. So, so that, that pretty well brings you a full circle. Sorry for the, the, the Coles notes version, but if you want the long version, we, you get, you better have more time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We awesome. need a longer podcast. So you bought your, um, Vancouver Island, I guess, black bear outfit. And then, so today you have uh rogue river, and then you also have your Saskatchewan outfit as well. Is that the three that you're running currently, Jim? Correct. Yeah. Well, but I haven't actually taken anybody in Saskatchewan. Eva, <clears throat> our daughter and Tim, our son-in-law, they've hunted it a couple times uh, since 2012, 13 and 14. We had those horrible winters and uh, I, I just have not seen the deer come back like I want them to. So I, I'm not going to go take hunters and, and kill deer when they, they need to recover. So, so it's been a long time. I mean, 10 years since mm -hmm. we've really used the Saskatchewan, uh, you know, it's Canadian Whitetail Adventures uh, operation. So we've got a lodge out there in Smeaton and, and uh, you know, quite a large territory, 40 whitetail tags. Um, but uh, but I we haven't taken any hunters. I'll, I'll, you know, I sent the guys in there this year to set up some trail cameras and see what's around to see if the numbers are, are returning to what they were pre-2012. It was actually 2007 was the big hit. Um, it's that long ago. It takes that long for these populations to recover in that fringe habitat, which white-tailed deer, you know, pushing north, when I was a kid, there was no white-tailed deer, or very few. When my dad was a kid, there was none. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so they've pushed north, pushed north, but but they're 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 just on the edge of where they can survive. Um, you know, they can't go much further north anymore, and bad winters knock them back for you know a long time, generations. So so I you know I'm, I've held off on the on the. Uh, outfitting out there you know there's enough for for the local guys for sure uh, to hunt but uh but you know to bring in more people put more pressure on the whitetails i've left that alone and and yeah we've got our vancouver island pacific rim opening territory on uh, vancouver island that i've had for going on almost 30 years now i think yeah it'll be 30 years next year um so, so that one's, you know, still going, but COVID of course knocked that back. We haven't taken anybody for two years. Um, and then our rogue river outfitting territory, we lost one year to COVID, but we were back at it last year. That's, that's a fabulous place. I love it. It's 12,000 square miles of untouched wilderness, no roads, not a single road in the territory. It's awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. I know, um, our treasurer, Joe Humphreys, has been talking with uh, Ryan Leaf about uh, trying to work with you guys, trying to do some sort of hunt through our, our wild sheep raffles up there with you guys. And oh, yeah. uh, But you, I know you guys are booked up, but he, we've been talking to you guys about that and uh, be fantastic <clears throat> to, to work with you on that. Such a great area and, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, I, you know, people ask all that. They come to our museum and they, they say, well, you've been all over the world, you know, many times and all these crazy places where – you know, what's the most beautiful place you've been? And it's the Yukon. I swear, you know, I, there's one valley I, I go every year, last week of August, first week of September, and stand on one little spot. And I, you know, I can see 30 miles this way, 30 miles that way. And the valley is a, a beautiful flat valley with mountain range after mountain range after mountain range. And the mountain birch are crimson red and the the willows are yellow and the, you've got the caribou moss on the mountainsides and then the snow caps. It's, uh, I don't think there's a, there's a more pure wilderness anywhere in the world right now from what I've seen. And, you know, it's Siberia is like Grand Central Station compared to the Yukon. So, mm -hmm. so it, it is, it, it's a spectacular place. And, and anybody that hasn't been there, you know, put it on your bucket list because it's, it's worth going. You know, now it's also worth getting out of once you hit October. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, you know, no, thank you. I'm good. Ryan, Ryan can stay up there and 
try and run <laughs> on those, you know, ice covered roads with no, no daylight in the winter. But, uh, but yeah, it, it is a beautiful place up there. Yeah. I did my first fly in hunt this mid September and we flew out of D's about an hour Northwest. So about an hour South of the Yukon border. And it's my first time being up that way. And just, I, I know what you mean. You get up to the crest there and you just look and it's nothing except valleys and rolling hills and it's just unreal it's just yeah it takes I, your breath I, away yeah people don't realize how big this earth really is you know the the sky's falling in the you know the environment's never going to mend but but the, the world is a big big place and and you know nature is a, is a powerful powerful force that uh you know we're, we're not cosmic events in nature we're, we're just we're part of nature and and a lot of people forget that they think we're above nature we're not and when you stand up there in those places and 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 you've flown for an hour and a half and there's not a single anything uh, you know other than wilderness you 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 get a, a a little different perspective than when you're sitting downtown new york city and thinking the world's going to end because pollution and because of noise and and whatever you know buildings it's, it, you know it's a luxury problem. Yeah, you feel really small. <laughs> yeah, you do. Up there, you realize we really are small. Yeah. We're insignificant. And, and over, we can't fathom, you know, you're looking at land that hasn't been touched for since the last ice age, you know, what, 15,000 years up there, if it was touched because there was a corridor. And, and it, you know, it puts in perspective that, you know, we didn't cause the last ice age, but, it, you know, we were a mile deep right here in ice. And, and, you know, the one before that and the one before that, we, we can't think in terms, we can barely think in terms of decades, let alone, you know, centuries. And then, you know, we have history going back millennium. Okay, got it. That's nothing. It's not 10,000 years. 10,000 years ago, we were hunter gatherers. You know, and that's nothing in time. I mean, when you try and think 100,000 years, you can't. Our imaginations are incapable of going there, uh, you know, let alone a million years, a hundred million, a billion years. We can't mm -hmm. even, it, it just doesn't compute. But when you stand up in those places, you, you come the closest you can, I guess, I don't know. I, I say it's to your ancestral soul where you're, you're, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you kind of, I don't know, you, you see, you see, and, and That's I don't, right. you know, I don't know. I, I'm talking metaphorically here, but, uh, but the, um, the Yukon is a very, very special place. And any of these wildlands that we have here in British Columbia, Alberta, I mean, Northwest Territories, all of these places are, uh, they're, uh, they're spectacular. Saskatchewan, you know, I don't want to leave out anybody, but uh, everybody that I haven't mentioned, I'm including <laughs> you. But, uh, yeah, no, so, Yukon, spectacular place. So Jim, let's, let's segue a little bit then. We talked about you know, you're, you know, you being up there in these beautiful spots and these beautiful worlds that we live in, BC, Yukon, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, but now, you know, there's all the noise, you know, everything going on in the world around us. And, and you're in the racket with the social media world and dealing with, you know, kind of, kind of being always on the attack, being on attacked by, you know, different groups and stuff. But, um, you know, where do we sit in the modern day world? Like, you know, you said there's this this history and in, in, in terms of, you know, millennia, you know, we're just a speck in time, but there's all this energy and, you know, this uh, sort of this divisiveness in this current world we live in. And I know this is a total segue, but, it, you know, it's a big part of what you deal with every day. So I'd like to hear Jim's view of the hunting industry and, and the world the last 50 years and where we come to today now, really. So. <laughs> you know, the biography was easy. This one, you're, you're, yeah. you know, who, who was it? Uh, Churchill said, you want me to do a two hour speech? That'll be a thousand dollars. You want me to do a 10 minute speech that that's going to be, you know, $10,000 because it's <laughs> far more difficult to, to squinch up what you want to say in such a short period of time. You know, I've been in the industry now for 40 years and I'll talk specifically about the industry. We had some issues back in the early, you know, fifties and sixties that, that, you know, Guys like Howard Ruark and, and Hemingway and these guys, they, they, you know, they, they were they were pretty macho. I mean, when you when you when you really look at it, yeah, I love reading his, their stories, but but uh, you know, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're misogynist, but they're you know, certainly they they created part of the problem, 
and the, it's fair enough, you know, when Ruark says, what did he say, he slept with X amount of women and was bragging about it, it's like, you idiot, you know, if what do you think is going to happen? The the backlash for anybody, anybody's perception of that kind of human being who also is a hunter is going to be negative. And, and, you know, then you had Kennedy assassination in 62, and that pretty well got rid of any hope we had of getting on television. We had Kurt Gowdy's American sportsman at the time, and we didn't. I didn't have a TV. But uh, speaking historically, there was. And, you know, Kennedy assassination, that kind of sent, you know, that that's when that pendulum, however you want to describe it, started coming back. And it started gaining momentum really, really hard. I mean, through the 80s, growth industry was environmentalism, 90s, you know, same thing. Uh, um, but a pendulum's a pendulum, right? And it, it swings out and, and, and it, you know, stops gaining momentum when, when it gets too outlandish, you know, their behavior was outlandish and, and the pendulum started coming back. And I'm not saying they were personally responsible, but, but that attitude was wrong. Um, you know, hunting, let's put our foot on the animal and put our gun on it. And let's, you know, it's, a blah, 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 you know, beating our chest machism, machismo that, that just wasn't acceptable. And, and it is, it's, it's gross. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. And I'm a guy and I, you know, I am not averse to beating my chest and saying, look at me, you know, I'm, this is my, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just, there's some of that in, innate, you know, you can't, you can't fight it where we are who we are, but we also can have higher sensibilities and recognize it. And it's not a weakness. And, and as that pendulum is swinging out, I think there's they're getting too outlandish on on the one side now. You know they'd love to have this pendulum swing all the way around and and us disappear forever, but but it's not going to happen because it's too outlandish. It, it makes no sense. Common sense is is just kind of gone. Um, you know the political correctness nowadays, the the wokeness. You know the, that stuff never goes on forever. I mean the Inquisitions, Spanish Inquisitions went on for how long? You know, it was a long time, but but eventually people said, what, "What? You know, that doesn't make sense. You know, they're a witch, and they're you know, if they drown when we throw them in the water with the rocks tied around their legs, it, you know, it, it proves that they were innocent. If they live, they're a witch, obviously. So we got to burn them. You know, I mean, that's that's essentially what we're at right now today, um, mm-hmm. and and it, it you know it can't it won't keep going. It, it just won't keep going. And I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit under my hat here, out of my hat, because I, you know, I'm not old. I wish I was 400 years old. I could, I could probably give you a lot wiser uh, take on this. But you know, just I read a lot, and I, I mean, you know, I, I'm interested in these kind of things, and, and, and history, you know, has repeated itself, and and that's what I'm seeing is that that, uh, yeah, social media is a bad thing if it's misused, and and it can be misused, and it is misused, but it's also it's also a powerful tool that we have at our disposal if we use it correctly. Uh, you know, I can reach right now, I can make a post and, and, you know, reach millions of people. You know, I couldn't do that back in the eighties. You know, I could write a magazine and just hunters would read it right now. Like if I want to say something that reaches outside of the hunting world, I can do that in, in a heartbeat, you know, just with, uh, that's the good news. The bad news is I can reach outside of our industry in a heartbeat you know, with just uh, uh, something that I say or a photograph I post that um, that that is inappropriate and in, in for and I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's inappropriate for the people that don't understand the context of the photograph or what I'm saying. Um, so so I you know in my position with the reach that I have and the voice that I have, I'm very cognizant of it cognizant of that and I don't uh, you know I, I, I try I try to use the tool properly to build something as opposed to tear something down so so you know I, I'm very aware of when I make a post the message that I'm sending out there to the non-hunting public as well as to us hunters you know we get it we understand you know um, conservationists uh, you know I don't I don't call myself a hunter I call myself a naturalist you know, we live field to table. It's a lifestyle. You know, I love birds. I love insects. I love, you know, everything, minerals, you name it. Come to my Hanuman Museum here in Vancouver Island and you'll see. Um, you know, so, so I'm, I, I, you know, I'm a naturalist and, and that's 
hunting is part of being a naturalist. It always was. What's changed? Nothing. You know, there's more people in the world. The opportunities are less, but but hunting was always a part of living a natural lifestyle. So, so I, you know, I, I think as long as we keep using the 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 reach that we all have to to you know carefully and and properly, you know, you don't take a hammer and hit yourself on the head. That's not really the proper way to itch your ear. You know, it, it's if we're careful with it, and and a lot of people will say. I'll never back down, you know, those idiots. That's, that's, I don't know, it's moronic because why would you want to die on that hill? To what effect? What what have you actually done to positively uh, impact the view of hunters and hunting on the non-hunting public by dying on that hill? It it, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, I mean, you can use all kinds of analogies. A willow, I'd rather be a willow bending than an oak tree you know, and, and get blown over. You know, willow's still standing there after every single hurricane that ever came through. Oak trees get knocked over, you know. So, so, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm losing, using all kinds of illusions here. And, and uh, but, but I do think the pendulum is slowing down. I think that there's a lot of work being done by, you know, the younger generation, you guys, uh, your conservation efforts. I mean, I read, Steve, your your curriculum vitae, you know what you what you're members of, and the amount of money that you've put towards what you believe in conservation of the wildlife species. My dad didn't do that, you know. His generation did not do that. Hemingway did not do that. Neither did Ruark, but you guys are, and and you know the next generation younger than you, your children will too. They recognize the responsibility to look after and steward this amazing resource and we can't take it for granted <clears throat> so so i you know as long as we keep uh, you know you just have to stand tall stand proud and and you know, tell the truth and and continue to tell the truth and do it in a way that's palatable for the people that are non-hunters um, not everybody understands what the picture of a dead animal and why we're smiling you know they think we're happy because it's dead no, no, we're not. That's nothing to do with it. You know, it's respect for the animal. There's, I mean, I can get, like I say, get deep into this, but you, you paid for the uh, ten-minute version, so, <laughs> so I'll try and keep it short. But I, I, you know, I have great hope for the future. It's not going to be like it was in the past. It, it'll be more, it'll be more heavily managed. Um, you know, the freedoms that we had, that I had growing up, my father had. You know, they're not going to be there. Um, they just can't be. There's too many people, and the resource, specifically talking about wildlife, uh, uh, it's not greater. You know, it's it's unless we buy back, preserve, somehow keep the the wildlands for the wildlife, and not turn it into soybean pastures or soybean farms. You know, the, the uh, there's not going to be more wildlife. You know, we're going to reach carrying capacity with all of our conservation efforts with the space that the animals have. Uh, and then they're gonna need more space if we want more wild animals, which means more value, which we know that argument, um, you know, and, and it's common sense, it's logic. Give, make them worth a million dollars each and you're not gonna have cows on that land. You're gonna have you're gonna have deer or elk or moose, whatever it is you want. So so I think there's uh, there's an awareness. People are tired of the rhetoric and, and uh, the lies you know, they're, they're realizing, well, wait a minute, that makes no common sense whatsoever. Um, and, and time is going to also say, well, you predicted, you know, 13 of the of the last three end of the worlds, you know, it, it just can't be ending. You know, it's just, so that means the whole thing, you, your whole premise is wrong. You know, that means you've been lying to us all the way along and who made the money and they'll start to realize, you know, someone will start doing investigative journalism and find out, Who's making the money on, on some of this? You know, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but bullshit. You know, who's making the money on it? Because it's always there's always money at the root of it when you've got lies and and uh, so so I I think that the pendulum is going to start coming back, and I, I think hopefully maybe not in your generation, but the next generation hunting and hunters will be perceived differently, and it's because of the little bits that all of us are doing to to help that and social media is a great tool for doing that you know reaching out to people that don't hunt with our message 
certainly the mainstream media is not doing it, although there's the odd person now starting to to do that. I mean, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal um, about a, was it a snowboarder that hunts? And he said, yeah, I lost sponsors, but I don't care. I, you know, I'm tired of living a lie. I'm telling you the truth. I think it's great. And and the Wall Street Journal printed it. I don't know if it was in their actual print uh, version of their newspaper, but it was certainly online. And, and uh, you know, last time I saw that was 1994 when they did wall street journal did a print article on me and and uh hunting bears on vancouver island so you know you certainly wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago so you know 20 years ago that kind of ended but now they're coming back and there's journalists willing to tell the truth and and not be afraid of of being uh you know committing uh, suicide you know figuratively speaking uh, for their career, so so yeah, I, I have I have hope for the future, and and uh, a lot of it, they can say when they're confronted with somebody, why do you, you know why do you do that? You know why do you kill animals? It's because you love killing, you bloodthirsty love. Well, no, it's not. You know, actually, no. You know, and and you're doing that right now. So I, yeah, I, I'm I'm bullish on the future of hunting and hunters. Well, that's encouraging, Jim, and no surprise coming from you. Always seeing the positive, and and I tend to agree with you. I I do see that pendulum slowing significantly, mm-hmm. and there's just there's just a change that you can feel. And as we know, though, with this stuff, it all takes time. So it's it's not going to happen tomorrow, but I feel we're going in the right direction, or at least we're stemming the tide of of what's happening. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. We're 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 tying it off with a tourniquet, and now we'll start the healing process. But it'll take time. Education always takes time when you've got an ideology that's so deeply embedded in our society. It's going to take time to uh, mm-hmm. to fix that. Well, that's encouraging. Jim, I know you uh, have a tea time and we got to be respectful of your time here and uh, love to, we, I could chat to you for four hours and, mm-hmm. and love every time I run into you. So we'll be respectful of that. Just thank you again for coming on the show and look forward to maybe doing this again in the future. And maybe we'll have even more positive uh, talks coming up here. So. Well, hopefully you don't wait till the 70th uh, podcast. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I'm available anytime guys. You know, I'm a huge supporter of you, you know, the wild sheep society and, and I always have been. Uh, so I don't mean financially, but I mean, just believe in it and do whatever I can to help out. So anytime you want me on, just, just get a hold of me and, Mornings are the best time, uh, you know, before tea time, obviously. <laughs> I appreciate it, Jim. Good luck and uh, look forward to, to seeing some uh, low scores on the scorecard today. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath, but, uh, but I'll be doing my best. <laughs> awesome. Enjoy. You betcha. Thanks, guys.